Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I am your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor of law at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia, where I teach a variety of business courses, ethical courses, and some transactional skills stuff. I am very excited today because we are going to talk about the free the hair movement and grooming codes. And I have assembled a panel of sister friends, as I will call them all, uh, to celebrate Wendy Green, who is I consider, you know, one of the architects of, of the Grooming Code legislation through her groundbreaking scholarship over the years. She's been toiling at this for 10 plus years, writing amazing law review articles. So I am very, very excited to talk about grooming codes, how hair discrimination impacts our lives, and generally to celebrate Wendy. So before we get started, I'm just going to let my guests introduce themselves, starting with Wendy, Wendy Green. All righty. Well, good morning. And thanks so much, Carlos, for having me. And congratulations Thank on you. your Common Sense um, podcast. I'm so excited to be here. And I just love the opening just to hear your name. It just brings a joy to my heart. So I am Wendy Green. I'm a professor of law at Drexel University, Thomas R. Klein School of Law in Philadelphia. I'm also um, the founder of the Hashtag Free the Hair Movement. And as mentioned, one of the legal architects um, laying a a legal blueprint for what is commonly known as the Crown Act and life legislation that combats race-based natural hair discrimination that African descendants experience in workplaces, schools, and other spaces. All right, Rashida. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. And congratulations again, Carlos. And you know, I'm always down to celebrate my Dear old friend, Wendy Green, fellow South Carolina Bell, um, but I'm Rashida Thomas. I'm a DC-based communication strategist. I'm the principal and co-founder of RC Communications, a firm here based here in Washington, DC. Um, I tell people that I'm the woman that you hire if you're either in a crisis or you're ready to nail down your messaging and brand yourself as an expert in your field. Awesome. We all need more Rashida. Like, I, just, I need to write down what you just said so that I can know that we need to just bring you to Ludi or call you or something, because I think we can all meet time. We will call you all the time, unfortunately. <laughs> Marissa, last but not least. Yeah, good morning. I'm literally, literally the last. Like, I'm like the sort of the newbie to this friend group, and I'm just super grateful um, for uh, Wendy introducing me to Carlos and Carlos introducing me to Rashida. And I am an assistant professor of law at St. John's University in New York. And I am also a human rights practitioner, and I moonlight um, as a human rights consultant um, from time to time. And I'm just really happy to be here and glad to really call you our, my friends. And Carlos, congratulations, like, on this show, but also on being, like, a newly tenured professor. Like, Yay! Thank you. <laughs> Yes, with, with the asterisk of pending, you know, trustee slash provost. Yes. <laughs> I am a lawyer and I have to give the disclaimers, right? right. I have to put the asterisk up and give the disclaimers. So I should say we have kind of broken protocol a little bit in that Wendy and I both have champagne on set today. 
Um, so at some point, we're, we're going to be drinking champagne during the show. So just don't be surprised when you like hear oh, right. a bottle pop. Um, that is what is happening. All right. So here's what I want to start with. And, and I'm going to start this one with Wendy, um, because you know, my first question is, why do we even need the Crown Act and other legislation? You know, I have people say, you know, what's the big deal? If you want to go to work, you need to look the way you, you, you're supposed to look to have a job. You should dress the part. Or I have people say, don't I have a First Amendment right to wear my hair however I want to? Um, and clearly both of those things are wrong. And so I need Wendy, our resident constitutional law professor, to explain it, explain why we need that and explain why it is important. Sure. So what many people are not aware of, a lot of people are just not aware of race-based natural hair discrimination. And what that means is, is discrimination on the basis of our natural hair hairstyles and hair textures like afros, braids, twists, locks, bantu knots, and so forth. And so for many people, they really think that we are able to rock our hair freely and freely rock our hair as we so choose. But what has happened under our federal civil rights uh, protections, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we've had federal courts that have actually declared that uh, race-based natural hair discrimination, except for in the cases of Afros, does not violate our federal civil rights protections against race discrimination in workplaces and other spaces. And so what this legislation really does, it helps to um, basically what happens under federal law is that if you lock, braid, or twist your afro and discriminate it against on those grounds, you don't have any uh, legal recourse, only in the cases involving discrimination on the basis of afros. And so what this legislation and other types of legal reforms really does do is, is what, I, what I call like cure, cure, curing uh, a hair-splitting legal distinction. It really cures this gap in civil rights protections by making very, very clear in the legislation um, that that race-based natural hair discrimination is racial discrimination and that it is impermissible in our workplaces, in schools, in, in the case of New York, for example, also in public accommodations and housing. Um, and so this is why we need the legislation is really to try to combat, you know, not, I mean, centuries honestly, centuries of uh, racial discrimination on the basis of our natural hair texture and hairstyles, similarly to like discrimination on the basis of our skin, skin color. And how do they define afros? Afros. Or do they? Well, they don't really define an Afro other than it is an immutable characteristic of Blackness. So the idea is that only Black people have Afros, and if you have an Afro, you must be Black or African descended. Now, we know that's not true, right? right. <laughs> because a lot of folks you know, claim to be Black or African descended who are rocking froze, right? Uh, but how, how courts and many people have thought about it is that Afros are something that are uniquely um, a unique signifier of blackness, right? Or an Afro hair texture is a unique signifier of blackness. So therefore, the idea is that if you discriminate on the basis of an Afro, they totally understand why that's racial discrimination. But magically and curiously, if you lock, braid, or twist that Afro, then it's no longer race discrimination and it doesn't violate our federal civil rights laws. Um, at least that's how it's historically been um, viewed for like the past 40 years. But I'm happy to report that in light of some new case law, um, Constitutional case law, in fact, um, and I'm serving as a legal expert for this case involving um, DeAndre Arnold and his, and his cousin Caden Bradford in Texas that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund has brought on and uh, brought on their behalf um, because they have been discriminated against on the basis that their locks, um, they were unable, meaning Caden. Uh, uh, 
Radford was unable to matriculate in his educational program unless he cut off his locks. Uh, DeAndre Arnold was told that he couldn't walk uh, during graduation unless he cut off his locks. And they brought a really groundbreaking constitutional law case challenging this grooming policy in the schools. And to my knowledge, the federal district court has now um, enjoined that the enforcement of that grooming policy for the first time, I think, awesome. in constitutional history, and has actually declared that this grooming policy that barred uh, long hair um, adorned by, by male students is a violation of the 14th Amendment and its prohibitions against sex discrimination, as well as um, its prohibitions against race discrimination. And to the point about First Amendment, it is an infringement upon their cultural expression in violation of the First Amendment. So wow. I'm really happy to share, yeah, this really groundbreaking news about this particular constitutional law case for the first time that is actually protecting students against this negative enforcement of grooming policies, regulating their hair, and viewing it as sex discrimination, race discrimination, and infringement upon their constitutional rights to be free to express their, their, their cultural identities. Awesome. Very exciting and rare for us to have like something to celebrate from a court. Right. This is true. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't happen often. Very All right. right. So Marissa and Rashida, what I'd like to do is to have a conversation about how these grooming codes and even just, you know, unspoken cultural norms have impacted your lives and, you know, why we need to, to end it. You know, how does how does it change the way people engage with the workplace? So I'll start with Rashida. You know, you, you now own a business, but before that, you obviously had to work somewhere. And in your experience of working somewhere else, how did these grooming codes that, that Wendy's fighting to get rid of impact you? So self-employment is a blessing. And uh, <laughs> it is. Um, but to start, I went to Howard University, the Howard University in Washington, D.C., where a, a Black woman expressing herself through her hair was celebrated. I learned so much about what we could do with our hair while I was in college. I mean, you walk on Howard's campus, honestly, any HBCU campus, to be frank, and you will see every style from straight to bald and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Um, it was different when I, when I went into the world uh, where it was not, you know, the Mecca, not just Black people that I was surrounded by. Um, When Obama became president in 2008, I decided never to get a relaxer again. There was something about there being a black president. I said, you know, my president is black. This is a new day. I'm going to stop straightening my hair. I'm going to embrace my natural curls. So over the next two years, I transitioned. And that was pretty difficult in the workplace where I was in the vast minority. Um, I had to answer a lot of really awkward questions, really duck people trying to touch my hair. Um, I had one really very awkward interaction with a colleague in the hallway where there were other people around where he was debating me. He kept insisting that I had cut my hair and I was trying to educate him on shrinkage. Um, <laughs> like, literally my hair is just curly today. And what made it even more horrible is this person worked in HR. So, you know, <laughs> Wendy's work is so incredibly important because Black women should be able to go to school, work, and everything in between, and wear their hair however they want without being discriminated against. I don't understand the need to touch people. I don't know. And their hair. Um, and I often it's say... a violation. <laughs> well, and what I say is that, like, you're, you're petting me like a pet. You're petting me like I'm not a human being. 
right? You're, you're treating me like I am a non, non-human mm-hmm. and the same way you would walk up to a dog and pet it, you're walking up to me and petting me. Um, so please don't touch me or my hair without permission, but that doesn't stop people. Um, I find I'm always like ducking the hands, like, yep. please don't touch me with your COVID hands and <laughs> put them all in my hair <laughs> that is near my face. Exactly. Like, don't do that. Um, so that's your PSA, everyone. Like, please don't touch and pet black people. Like we don't like it. Um, nobody likes it. All right. Now, Marissa, you have this unique position in that you're currently a professor, mm-hmm. but you did not mention that you used to be a very important government official in New York City, and you helped to pass a version of the Crown Act in New York. So I would love for you to talk about why you felt that was important, how you found Wendy in the first place, um, and, and you know, just kind of, you know, what, what, why it's necessary for cities to do this in addition to, you know, the, the, the you know, federal court cases and other things, too. Yeah, thanks. I mean, so I'll say that the, my meeting Wendy was like serendipitous because people knew about the work that was happening in New York City and someone connected us on Facebook. Right. And the rest, I, I think that's how it happened, Wendy. And I think the rest was history. Right. Um, at that point, I you know realized I was like, I don't think we've actually been citing Wendy's work. Um, and Wendy needs to like we need to bring Wendy in to the New York City government apparatus to like educate, lead us. And also we on our end need to be giving her credit for laying the path, laying the groundwork for what we're actually trying to do. As far as the importance of local governance, local governance is what affects people's daily lives. Like when you actually are looking for an apartment, when you're enrolling your children in school, when you are um, reporting to work, you're doing most of that locally, right? And so the local ordinances and policies that are in place are what put money in your pocket, keep money in your pocket, what um, make the difference um, if you're a Black woman of you being part of the public sphere or being relegated to the private sphere. And so um, the grooming codes in New York, as they existed prior to um, New York City's enforcement guidance around hair discrimination, were such that people were getting suspended from school, right? And of course, when you're suspended from school, not only is, does it have a deleterious effect on your education um, and you know your reputation as a student for be, being troublesome, which then can lead to disciplinary and even criminal um, proceedings, but it disrupts your entire family. Your parents have to come and pick you up, right? And then they're in trouble at work. And so um, not only is discrimination just like ridiculous on its face, but it has actual material outcomes for people. And so it was really necessary for New York at the time when we were trying to push through a host of um, progressive policies to actually tackle that um, as well. And we found that it wasn't just black women who were benefiting, but anyone who was perceived to be black or perceived to be um, uh, sort of affiliated with black culture in so way, some way. So you had Puerto Rican kids getting tossed out of school, Dominican kids, like whether they were like Afro descendant or not, um, and, and so on and so forth. And there are people of all genders and gender expressions as well. Um, and so when you were actually protecting people from that one form of discrimination, there was this like intersecting impacts that are had on, on their lives and you're sort of liberating them on a number of fronts. And um, I think it was just really meaningful that we did that. I will say one more thing before I shut up is that on the policy end, it's super important, but it's also important because it has an, it has an impact socially, 
right? Has it impact socially for like even the conversations you're putting up with, with your traditional parents or grandparents in your home, right? Because once people can start educating themselves around the fact that this is, um, you know, a, a, a legacy of discrimination and internalized racism, even with our families, then people start to challenge their own beliefs about whether what your hair should look like and how you should present yourself. So it just has positive impacts throughout society at the local level. So Marissa's going to have to leave early. So I'm going to go ahead and ask Marissa a follow-up question. Um, and, you know, you currently have your hair in a twist out. When you worked at the city, you had locks. Um, you know, how did you personally, uh, were you personally impacted by hair care discrimination um, just, you know, through your career and in and, and being brave enough uh, to, to go ahead and wear your natural hair, even when you were in those environments before? Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Um, if you Google my name uh, along with hair discrimination, you'll see this New York Times piece that comes up that talks about like my experiences when I was practicing law on Wall Street, when people were asking me, right, can I wash my hair with locks um, with other black employees, other black colleagues telling me that I wasn't a good fit for the firm and I was making them look bad. Right. Because I was transitioning to natural, natural hair. Um, and so I, you know, I, I grew up wearing my hair natural, but also in a. Um, in a context of not having a lot of freedom of what I could do because of the sort of the cultural, religious, like national origin context in which I was living. And so it was very important for me to be free and to like express myself and then to sort of go through all of the, the schooling and, uh, you know, getting all the accolades and being a good student and getting the job. Then to say, to, to hear from even my own fellow black colleagues that you're still not enough, right? We need you to shrink yourself just a little more was very painful for me. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it, 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 it played a part in driving me out of that sector. And I'm really hoping that now that I'm in academia or, you know, now that I've been in government, that my presence in those sectors as someone who wears their hair in a multitude of colors and textures, that I will give people the confidence to also do the same and that I will be challenging those people um, who have the mindset of, you know, there's a certain way to be professional. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of what Rashida said about, you know, having to have an argument with somebody about, did you cut your hair and explaining shrinkage? Uh, the other thing you have to explain is like, if you get braids, your hair grew like, no, no. <laughs> like, or if you wear a wig and it, it's, you know, it, it's the issue of why is my hair always the subject of conversation um, such that if like I'm paranoid about changing my hair and I would think about this when I was in practice, I was like, you know, if I'm going to switch my hair, it can't be too different because I'm going to have to spend a week with every single person I see explaining to them what I did to my hair when I'm just trying to come to work. Right. I just want to go to work. I don't want to talk to you about my hair. We're not friends like that. Like, I just want to come to work. So if I throw a wig on today, I'm throwing a wig on today because that's what I felt like. And if I get some braids, that's what I felt like. It's not, it shouldn't be a topic of conversation, but it is because of the cultural norms. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. So Wendy, we have mentioned that you are the foundation of your work is the foundation of the crown act. Um, And every episode I like to kind of break down some technical things. It is called getting common. So I would like you to explain to us, what part of your work is in the act and, you know, what, what are your definitions and things that have, have made it into the, the crown act? 
Sure. Well, I'll have to tell you that I have worked on or at least advanced um, almost 20 pieces of civil rights legislation, um, either denominated the Crown Act or our parallel versions of the Crown Act. And so in terms of my work uh, and how it shaped this legislation, just um, every day actively um, either um, helping to draft legislation, like, for example, the Federal Crown Act uh, that would amend um, several of our federal civil rights protections against race and national origin discrimination, um, additionally, um, um, as you know, as a professor, we have to write, uh, we have to publish, we have to write those law review articles for promotion and tenure. And so back in 2008, I published one of the first pieces around grooming codes discrimination, in particular around the ways in which um, how appearance, like um, how we how we dress, um, the language that we may speak, um, our accents, um, the way in which we wear our hair has um, animated racial discrimination, but hasn't been viewed as that under our federal civil rights law. So in that piece, uh, Title VII, what's hair and other race-based characteristics got to do with it, which I'm happy to report has been republished this year um, in a special edition of the University of Colorado Law Review on Racial Justice, one of four pieces. Um, so I'm excited to report that it was republished published, um, you know, now 12, uh, 13 years later, um, is that um, in that particular piece, what I was really um, interrogating were the ways in which federal courts were viewing race and very narrowly um, viewing race as a biological construct and therefore limiting uh, civil rights protections against racial discrimination on the basis of what they call immutable characteristics, like characteristics that you cannot change, characteristics that you're born with, or characteristics that only um, individuals of a particular racial group possess, which really are none, right? So this is why I call this doctrine um, um, a legal fiction. But nonetheless, what was happening back to that is that you saw that these cases, again, these federal courts were saying that, you know, discrimination on the basis of Afros is race discrimination, but if you lock, twist, or, you know, braid your Afro, then it's not. And, and so what I did was like, I just saw that this was a very narrow form of what constitutes race, very much shaped by these um, outdated biological notions of race. And I put forth a definition of race that I thought that federal courts and other lawmakers could use, which is that we should really be thinking about race as characteristics that are historically or commonly contemporarily and just simply associate it with race and animate racial discrimination. So that definition has um, now uh, been, is now a part of um, um, the Crown Acts and other types of legislation. It has also shaped um, federal courts um, um, in constitutional cases and in other federal civil rights um, statutory cases. And also uh, to, to Marissa's point earlier, it's shaped um, important in groundbreaking legal enforcement guidance, like in New York City, as well as in New Jersey and other spaces, and has also shaped litigation um, um, on behalf of not only claimants who are trying to fight race-based natural hair discrimination, but again, as Marissa alluded to, all forms of appearance discrimination at the intersection of race, religion, national origin, color, gender, gender expression. Um, and so the work really um, now, I don't know how many articles later, but in other, and 
also advocacy later has really, um, really fueled a whole movement um, to protect against appearance and grooming codes discrimination um, at the intersection of all of these different identity um, characteristics and traits. And, um, and so, yeah, so that's what I've been doing. And that's how the work has informed not only the Crown Act, but also I think greater levels of awareness around the fact oh. that these norms of um, professionalism that are associated with our appearance really do bring about inequity, right? And really do bring about, um, as you mentioned before, real emotional and psychological consequences and really are barriers um, to our equal participation and inclusion in society and other spaces. Um, and so it's really being able to increase that level of public awareness so that we can change our minds and we can free ourselves and liberate ourselves from these outdated norms of professionalism and what's acceptable and what's pretty and all those other things so that uh, we can all uh, be um, living more freely um, and um, in, in society. So I've got two follow-up questions for you, Wendy. Sure. The first is, <laughs> how do we find all of your work? Obviously, we could Google you, which is what I tell people. I'm like, have you not ever Googled Wendy Green? Or have you never Googled the word like hair discrimination, because when you do, Wendy Green comes up. Uh, but in case Google doesn't work for everyone, how do we find all of these articles and all this wonderful work that you have done? Oh, well, thank you. So yes, you can Google me. <laughs> you can do that, definitely. Or you can follow me um, on Instagram or on Twitter or LinkedIn, as well as um, Facebook at, at, at Free the Hair Now as well as at Professor D. Wendy. And you can go to my website, which soon we'll be posting um, the articles on the website at freethehair.com. So um, yeah, so, and if, if all those fails, you can always, I know this sounds really crazy. You can actually inbox me and I'm happy to forward you articles. I'm still a little old school. So I'm happy to, to email and, and respond to these messages, but you can definitely Google the work and it comes up on Google Scholar pretty easily um, in terms of not only grooming codes discrimination, but also something else that um, Marissa mentioned in terms of discrimination on the basis of misperceptions and, and misperceived identities. Um, and so I've also been a leader in that field as well. And um, so you can also Google more and learn more about the ways in which, um, you know, our mistaken identities sometimes often animate discrimination and should likewise violate our federal and um, local civil rights laws. Awesome. So first, Google Wendy. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, go to freethehair.com. <laughs> go to freethehair.com. And yes. you can inbox her and she will actually send you the article. So there is no reason to not cite Wendy Green. Um, I harp on this because as a professor, um, you know, one of the one of our biggest challenges, especially as black women professors, is that people do not cite us. And so I will read things that I know I said in articles all the time. Um, and I have not been cited. Um, Wendy reads things all the time. And sometimes I think it doesn't matter. You know, people are like, oh, you're a professor. It doesn't happen. It's like, no, you know, there seems to be this perception that, you know, if you're going to steal from someone, you can steal work from a black woman. So don't do that to Wendy anymore. You can Google or you can inbox her and she will literally send you the article that you need to cite. Um, so the other question I have, because, you know, I think all of us professors, um, just are amazed at what you have done because we write definitions in our articles all the time. And how do you go from 
writing a definition in a law review article, which we say nobody reads, right, except for other law professors, to having that be a part of so many different parts of legislation. So like, what was the process like of going from writing the articles, defining race in the articles, and then getting to where we are now, where it's cited? Sure. Um, Well, you know, I just have to say it was divine, divine intervention in so many different ways. Um, What I can say is, is that in writing my scholarship, I've always tried to make it, you know, obviously theoretical sound and grounded interdisciplinary nature, but it's accessible, accessible to the average person. So that anybody who really couldn't, who may be aware of this issue or maybe not aware of this issue could really be able to read it and it would resonate. And so I think that was a big part of the scholarship, um, namely on grooming coast discrimination and race-based natural hair discrimination more specifically. And I mean, frankly, I will have middle school students or high school students reaching out to me and saying, you know, I came across your article and it was so helpful to me for my school project. It was helpful for me to try to um, really educate school administrators and teachers on how to change their grooming policies. Um, And so it's really taking like these really complicated um, subjects, um, right, and these issues, and like what you're doing, making some common sense out of it, breaking it down, making it accessible, um, and really trying to advance things that are going to be practically um, and realistically employed um, in our own personal lives, in our professional spaces, and then more broadly in in the law, right, um, by lawmakers, and so. That is really the aim of my work. Um, How it has come about in terms of it shaping uh, legal reform is that, A, some folks will read about it when you want to try to tackle a particular civil rights issue, then you go to a legal scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, first and foremost, in addition to cases and statutes. And so that's one part of it in terms of how it shaped um, legislation and other legal reforms, but also getting out there. And and I mean, I have traveled all over the world uh, promoting this particular civil rights issue and really educating people about it um, in um all throughout the United States and four continents over the past uh, 10 plus years. So that too helps to to inform or at least to shape people's ideas that then lead to policy change, um, personal change and policy change and ultimately legal change as well. Um, I will tell you, I've also, um, you know, hit the pavement um, in terms of knocking on legislators' doors um, and saying, hey, this is a real issue that our federal civil rights laws does not address effectively, and we need to um, change or amend um, our civil rights protections. So literally going to the halls of Congress <laughs> walking and being lost in those halls of Congress and setting up meetings, talking to people about the importance of, um, of the civil rights legislation and volunteering. Right. To actually um, to help draft, um, to help serve as an expert in the drafting, as well as the enforcement of this legislation and other types of legal reforms. Um, And um, and then finally, I think also trying to shape the next generation, uh, the next generation of change agents, whether it's through my teaching or it's through getting out there and talking to different civic organizations from five year olds to 85 year olds um, um, to talking to. To, to people all over in so many different in the so many different spaces. So it's really for me, I think in some, it's about being um, not just simply a scholar, but being a scholar activist. And that is how the work has really helped to shape um, not only the law, but also policy and also personal uh, change in lives. Awesome. 
you know, I, I love that explanation, Wendy, uh, because, you know, one phrase that I hate is black girl magic. It's more like <laughs> black. Girl, it's black girl hard work. Right. It's black. <laughs> girl experience, Say that. Right? <laughs> right. And you just prove it's put, you know, how do you make it happen? You put in the work. Right. You work as hard as Wendy has worked on something and you are passionate about it. And then you get the outcome by putting in the work every day um, as oh, Wendy has for decades. Right. Yeah, like she's put in the work. She didn't just wake right. up one morning and have it happen, right? No, so I'll hand it to her. No, right. not at all. I will tell you really quickly, Carlos, and you probably and, and Rashida, you probably already know. So like people thought I was crazy for even tackling this issue. Like that people thought this is not real legal scholarship. You know, mm-hmm. this is not really even important. Um, and largely because it is dealing with um, race, but even particular is shaped by the very specific experiences of black people. Um, and also a lot of people, because it's not their experience, they don't believe that is important. Right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, thankfully I had enough um, wherewithal and, as you mentioned before, passionate about it and feeling very purpose-filled um, to not only just write one article about it, but to keep writing about it um, and to keep talking about it. Um, because I know that this is an issue, um, just broadly speaking, um, that really um, affects people's lives. Um, it affects our lives, not only in terms of loss of employment or educational opportunities or housing opportunities or entry into certain public accommodations, but it has real, um, um, real psychological and physiological impacts. Um, um, And so when I talk about, you know, race-based natural hair discrimination in particular, as it relates to Black women and girls, I always say, if you care about Black women's health, um, then you have to care about our hair. And so this is this I I will tell you is that, you know, oftentimes we get like, don't talk about race and your legal scholarship. You won't be taken seriously and all those types of things. And I really have to 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 resist that and really just speak about that. And I'm so glad that I didn't listen to those naysayers um, and really just do the work, do the work, do the work um, and do it earnestly. And I think everybody, thank you and Rashida and Marissa and so many others for the support of it, because I couldn't do the work without this tremendous group of individuals who have supported and uplifted me along the way. And we can't keep doing the work without people like you, right? Like now, if you don't talk about race when it's obvious, that is a bigger deal than not talking about, you know, than than eliminating race at all. And I think, you know, it's people like Wendy, people like Mario and Angela and all these other scholars who refuse to listen to people telling them not talk, to talk about race that have enabled all of us to talk about race constantly. So we, we are all very appreciative of y'all paving the way for us to be scholars. All right, Rashida. So you're a small business owner now and you can wear your hair however you want, um, but you also are consulting and advising clients about what they should do with their workplace, what they should do for their branding and marketing. Um, and so I, I would love to hear about what you know, what laws you're following, like in your business practices and, you know, what you're kind of encouraging your clients to do, um, you know, in in your communications company. Well, the good thing is most of our clients are in the political realm. So they've at least heard of the, uh, the crown act and, you know, that first level level, that awareness is the first, you know, that's the first step. So that's helpful. Um, what I'm starting to see, I'm starting to see the trend of clients wanting to incorporate more diversity in their collateral and graphics and um, everything that is, is part of that branding process. So they want to have pictures, of, even if it's stock photos, of women with natural hair. That's becoming more of the thing. I'm starting to see more natural hair when I go into clients' offices, which is 
amazing to see that they're allowed to flourish <laughs> and do what they want to do. Because let's be honest, if you are, if you don't feel comfortable with the way that you're wearing your hair at work, or you feel like you've got to spend time in your workday answering questions, that starts to undermine your perceived professionalism. I mean, if people are talking to you about your hair, then they're not talking to you about what work you're doing. And that's not how you get ahead in this world. So again, the work that Wendy is doing is so transformative and it's so incredibly important to every part of our lives. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful and so, so proud. You know, you bring up a good point. And I, I often think about how, um, you know, when I'm styling my own hair, even if my hair is natural, I take the path of least resistance in my mind, right? So, you know, before I locked my hair, I would blow my hair out if I was going to meet someone new. Right. If I if I have locks, I won't have them out or in some weird, you know, crazy style that I like to wear. I'm more likely to pull it back, put it in a bun, do something that is more conservative, because in my mind, I don't want to have to have the conversation about my hair or have my hair be a distraction because I don't know how the person I'm going to meet is going to take it, even though they shouldn't be discriminating. Um, And so I just wonder, you know, as a business owner, um, you know, are are you still having to censor yourself a little bit um, in that, like, you know, make those judgment calls, um, you know, that I find myself still making? Or, you know, is it a point in your industry where it's so accepted that you really can just not think about it anymore? So it's funny because I I obviously have these same conversations in my head, (laughs) these same things like, okay, I'm going to speak at something or I'm going to interview um, a potential client. Maybe I should straighten um, my hair. Something about the pandemic changed that for me. And I don't know if it's because I wasn't going to get my hair done. I didn't feel like doing my hair myself. And I wore my hair curly pretty much the entire quarantine. And so every Zoom, and we, we worked like normal, everything was just virtual. So every Zoom, every interview with potential client, they saw my hair curly. Every time we did, you know, um, my business partner Calvin and I would do um, things, you know, for our company where we would put out videos on our social media, I wear my hair curly, either out or in a curly bun. And it made me feel so good and so comfortable. So I, there's something about that that liberated me and I don't feel that way anymore. So people can take me however I'm wearing, I feel like wearing my hair that day, period. That's awesome. That is so amazing. And, you know, I think, you know, I kind of agree with you, right? Like during the pandemic, I might jump on Zoom with my head wrap on and it was just, <laughs> you know, it's like, it is what it is. You're in my house. Um, in my was, house. Yeah. Like <laughs> I'm not going to change my hair while I'm in my house. Like right. to, there was something about that, I think, that right. made it super offensive that that we are expected to, to change ourselves for sure. Uh, Rashida has mentioned her business several times. Um, and I would, and um, I should give the disclaimer of, or I guess it's not a disclaimer, it's information. The way that I know Rashida is through one of my good friends, Calvin Dark, who is uh, one of my classmates from Duke, which means I've known him for a number of years, more years than I'm willing to tell you the number of. Um, and so what I would love for you to do is to tell us how we find RC Communications. Um, you know, if people want to reach out to you about either retaining you, if they want to see the videos and things that you have, like, how do we do all of that? So you can find our company, RC Communications, at rccomsdc.com. You can find me on social media. You can find RC Comms on social media at rccomsdc.com. We're at rccomsdc on all social media platforms. I'm Rashida underscore T on all social media platforms. And I encourage you to link in with me. I'm 
pretty great on LinkedIn. You can like Wendy said, you can send me a message. I'm pretty quick about um, DMs on LinkedIn. That's the best way to, to reach me professionally. Awesome. And if I am in a crisis, right, you know, if, if I've had a scandal, yeah. <laughs> do y'all have like a bat phone? Do y'all have like an emergency way to get you? <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, you can call Carlos. Carlos will text me. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually true. Like you could. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But yes, we're easy to find. Um, if you Google us, we're easy to find on social media or through our website, um, you can contact us through our website uh, pretty quickly and effectively. Um, Crisis.com is one of the most rewarding things that we do uh, at our firm because we're usually working with someone at the worst time in their lives. So we are extremely uh, accessible awesome. <laughs> when one is going through a crisis. So no, yeah. we don't make ourselves hard to find. And yes. I will and say... I Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Wendy. No, no, no. I was just going to have to, I was going to just give Rashida a shout out too, because she is amazing during <laughs> times of crisis and non-crisis. <laughs> I Thank have you. benefited personally and professionally from her expertise and her advice. Um, and really, I will have to say in terms of branding, as well as just like, you know, re-envisioning yourself um, as, um, you know, a public figure, you know, which I think is very challenging sometimes for, for academics um, and in particular legal academics because that's not what we, it's not really our space, right? Um, and so Rashida, I mean, I can't tell you how how grateful I am for helping to, 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 to change my mind, <laughs> to help me to liberate my mind, <laughs> free myself, <laughs> how I even see myself and how I'm showing up in the world. So I, I appreciate, I appreciate you. So I definitely uh, endorse <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm a huge advocate for women in positions of power. And so I try professionally and personally to help women, especially black women. We are so incredibly powerful. And I think people need, we first need to see ourselves that way. And so I find myself working with a lot of black women leaders in business and politics and academics. First, making them realize you are incredibly powerful and you are an expert in your field. I mean, Wendy is the definition of expert in her field, <laughs> like the definition. So working with her is, has, well, has always been a dream. So I'm so happy. To and, and, you know, what I was going to say is the reason that, you know, Calvin and Rashida do such good work is you don't know who their clients are. That's right. <laughs> Right? You do not know who they have helped through. Like, I have no idea who their clients are. And even when they tell me who their clients are, they tell me in such a vague way that I'm like, what, who? I don't even know what you're talking about. That's how good their work is, right? If you know who someone's crisis communicator is, then they probably aren't doing a great job, right? But I never know who Calvin and Rashida are working for. So if you find yourself in a crisis, call Rashida. She will get you out of it. She will get you out of it. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So Wendy, I have one more. I'm trying to see we're we're a little behind, but not that much. So I do have one more kind of technical question for you. Sure. Um, and it's kind of this technical legal question. I think, you know, for law professors, I'm going to ask her to explain federalism. <laughs> but essentially, you know, why is it that we need a federal statute, court cases, state legislation? Because you've got these crown acts in all the different states. We've got it in Congress. And then the municipal litigation that Marissa had. Why can't like one thing just fix all of it? 
everything. That is such an important question. And um, and I am just going to nerd out just for a second on this question. You should. Um, okay. So why is it important? Well, many of us feel like if we have a federal civil rights statute, then it's going to cover everything. And it doesn't. Um, it covers a lot of things, definitely. A lot of spaces, um, a lot of individuals um, pr- prohibiting them from engaging in discrimination or protecting individuals from discrimination or other forms, forms of any inequality. But why we need um, the, on the state level, oftentimes what you will see, number one, is that um, they may cover more people. So, for example, with Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that prohibits race discrimination in workplaces, it governs those um, private um, uh, workplaces with uh, 15 or more individuals or 15 or more employees. Well, oftentimes on the state and municipal level, um, you have a lower coverage threshold, meaning it could be four or more um, employees. And so there's greater levels of individuals who are going to be protected against unlawful forms of discrimination, oftentimes on state and local levels than what we see on the federal level. Similarly, why it's important to have the federal level civil rights legislation is that, guess what? There are states that don't even have civil rights legislation that prohibit discrimination in workplaces. Okay, so it provides protection against uh, workplace discrimination as well as other forms of discrimination that may not be available in your city or in your state. So, for example, Alabama does not have a parallel statute that prohibits race discrimination or sex discrimination, national origin discrimination, or religious discrimination in workplaces and schools and housing and other spaces. So, literally, in trying to pass this legislation there, you are starting from scratch, okay? You also have, for example, in some spaces, well, thankfully, on the federal level, we have non-discrimination statutes that deal with workplaces and schools and housing, as well as public accommodations. But on the local level, you may not have that breadth of coverage, right? It may just be schools or it may just be workplaces. So this is why it's important to really um, not only try to implement, um, say, the Crown Act um, on local and municipal, as well as um, federal levels, but just civil rights legislation more generally, why it's important to have um, civil rights legislation and protections on all of these different levels. Um, And then lastly, as it relates to the litigation part of it, um, why is litigation important? Well, the litigation is the tool to actually try to interpret the scope of protections that we have under our federal civil rights laws. And so it really does bring about, I feel like even to some degree, oftentimes, Um, more meaningful protection um, um, for everyday individuals is through this litigation. Um, And and so that's really important. So they go hand in hand. Ideally, we we don't want to have litigation, right? Because the idea is that maybe people are either doing the right thing (laughs) um, in these spaces in terms of not discriminating, but um, it's a very important tool in terms of illuminating if there is something wrong or some kind of discrimination or inequity happening in these particular spaces, it actually lets folks know it's a very important public tool in terms of um, giving, you know, disseminating information about what's happening in these spaces. Um, And that litigation, just like that legislation, helps to either um, uh, bring about 
um, real substantive protections for not only those individuals who are involved in the litigation, but everybody else who might be affected by the discrimination. Um, but as you can see, sometimes even through litigation, it may do the opposite, right? Um, and so hence, this is why the legislation is important because it helps to cure sometimes those gaps in legal protection that courts can often create. Um, and then Lastly, what I'll say about enforcement guidance, sorry, really quickly, is that oftentimes many of us are not aware that we have human and civil rights agencies that are charged with enforcing our civil rights laws, whether it be state or local or federal. And so that enforcement guidance, the ways in which those, um, you know, those investigators, the ways in which, you know, administrative law judges are um, investigating and deciding these cases, adjudicating these cases, is really important because there are the ones responsible and charged with ensuring that our civil rights protections are actually doing what they're supposed to do. And so that enforcement guidance is really critically important as well. So it may not be legislation, and, and, and sometimes it may result in litigation, but that enforcement guidance is really quite critical because it tells us, um, or at least ensures, that those people who are on the ground, who are working on our behalves in these um, spaces, in our cities, and in our states, um, that they are really enforcing our our civil rights laws in the ways that they should be and bringing about meaningful protection against discrimination and inequity in workplaces and other spaces. Um, so all of these different parts of our government are really important. Um, and I think lastly, in terms of the local and state legislation and enforcement guidance, what I've really seen is that so many people from all different walks of life have been critically involved in getting the legislation passed. It's not just the lawyers. It's not just those who are deemed social justice advocates or civil rights advocates. It's students in the schools. It's, um, you know, parents who have um, experienced discrimination or their children have experienced discrimination, um, you know, from all different ages and walks of life. And it really does help to bring about greater levels of political participation from us all when we're, um, when we are advancing or helping to support some of these local and state uh, measures, unlike um, sometimes on the federal level where we may not have direct access um, to those spaces um, in the same way. So this is why, you know, this movement, I feel like um, on so many different levels is so important because it shows us the, important, uh, <laughs> the importance of our government <laughs> on all different levels, mm -hmm. but also the ways in which we too can get involved in our government and social and legal change on all different levels. So just a quick follow-up question. Sure. You know, let's say I am a parent in middle of nowhere, Alabama, and my child has been discriminated against for having locks. Who do I call? Well, I will say in Alabama, you would call the Equal Employment Opportunity. Well, actually, if it's a school, sorry, take that back. So I'm thinking about workplaces. My head is in the workspace. But if it's a workplace discrimination issue, definitely the EEOC or the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission there. In terms of the educational space, oh boy, um, since there's no express protections against race-based natural hair discrimination in Alabama, um, what you want to do is, is contact your school administrators. You also want to contact those who are over the particular school district. Um, you may even want to contact your, your local officials, say the city council, um, for example, in that particular um, jurisdiction. Um, so they are aware of this kind of discrimination that might be happening in the schools. Um, and so I think that's also really important. Um, obviously, you can call the lawyer 
career too. But what I what I will say is that you know you can also effectuate change on these on these on these other levels in terms of informing um, those who are who are um, actually implementing these types of regulations um, or or creating these types of um, uh, regulations. So teachers, school officials, um, city council members or other local officials, I think would definitely be the way to go. And are there any national organizations you would recommend? Um, you know, if, if, if you kind of hit those points and it fails, um, you know, are there a couple of nonprofits or other national organizations um, that are at the forefront of, of helping parents in places that don't have laws in place or people in a state that does not have a, a law in place? Sure, absolutely. So I've had the privilege of working with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who has been at the forefront of these issues as well, um, and have found really, um, you know, they are just amazing. They just really are the advocates there. And so they have been able to really navigate those spaces where there may not be express protection, or they might find protection within municipal um, and state um, or local regulations. So definitely the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, um, as well as the AC or the American Civil Civil uh, Civil Liberties Union, um, they too have been at the forefront of combating um, not only race-based natural hair discrimination, but uh, grooming codes and appearance discrimination more more generally. Um, so both of those national organizations have been um, extremely influential um, and have been great partners in 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 this work. Awesome. So I like to close the show with predictions. Uh, so, Rashida, where do you think we go next with grooming codes and hair care discrimination? What do you, what, where do you think we're going? I think that um, it's, it's been really great in the media to see high-profile women um, and men wear their hair naturally. I think it's really helping normalize. And, um, you know, I always say you can't be what you can't see. And so I think it's important for these little young Black girls and boys to see people in positions of power who are wearing their hair naturally, um, knowing that you can be successful and wear your hair any way that you want. You know, when I see Joy Reid and Michelle Obama and Tiffany Cross wearing their hair curly, I just I celebrate it. I think it's amazing. Even my local meteorologist, you know, I love that we're starting to see it more and more um, and more and more in advertisement and marketing. And I think that that is the trend that will continue. All right. And Wendy, just tell us briefly, like, what do you have coming up? What is next? Like plug, plug the oh. Wendy Green show. <laughs> well, lots, lots happening. Hopefully finishing up this book, hashtag free the hair, locking black hair. Yes. So movements um, in the near future, fingers crossed. And also, you know, right now I will just tell you, just, I am, I'm again, taking this, this, uh, this on the international road. So hopefully seeing some, some more legal reforms in, in other countries um, in the near future um, and just continuing to get out there and, and advocating for um, that. Everybody is able to rock their hair freely and freely rock their hair. Um, however they so choose. So those are the things that are on the forefront for me. Awesome. All right. So we only have a minute or so left. So I want to thank my guests today. I want to remind you that you can find this show on the Voice America Network. It's also on iTunes, Spotify, my YouTube channel. There's so many ways to listen to our show. Um, you can join us this time next week when I will be discussing social impact investing and the difficult race relationship between taking money from organizations, shopping at organizations uh, based on the way that they advertise 
and what they really do in their C-suite and other places. And my guest next week will be Carrie Martin Shelby, who's a professor at Washington and Lee and the author of a lot of groundbreaking work. And my friend, Ron Goins, who is the fundraising director of the Movement for Black Lives. Uh, you can email us, email me on the show page. You can reach me on social media at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you for listening. And we have to leave y'all, but Wendy and I are going to drink champagne. Like, <laughs> So that is happening when we go off air, like we're having a champagne celebration to celebrate Wendy, to celebrate life, to celebrate all things. So thank you all for joining us today. And please tune in next week and follow us everywhere. You can listen as many times as you want by going to iTunes and Spotify. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.